long time ago in a galaxy far away, we had some really good friends who were part of a larger friend group. They're the kind of people that we all raised our kids with together. And uh, we really liked them. They were really nice people. You would really like them too. And uh, one day he got laid off. And it was not one of those golden parachute kind of things. I mean, it was just cut off. It was just kind of a downsizing of his firm. He had a really good job. They had made a lot of money. And one day, poof, it was just gone. And he came home and he told his wife about it. And his wife was sympathetic, as you would hope that she would be. And then she basically said to him, okay, just so you need to know, I am not changing my lifestyle. I will still buy the things that I bought. I'm still going to Starbucks a couple of times uh, a day. I'm still going to do the manicure thing and still buy the things that I need for who I am. And as she was explaining this to Megan and me later, she said, he knew this when we got married. It's just part of the package. This is what you get when you marry me. And we were a little bit shocked because most people that we know, if the family goes into a, uh, a difficult time, everybody kind of pulls together, we're going to make this work. But she was more like, hey, you knew what you were getting into, and now you're just going to have this to make this thing work to support me in the lifestyle that I have gotten accustomed to. It probably won't come as a surprise to you that the relationship didn't last. And nobody was surprised by that, but it was really kind of shocking when you realized that when push came to shove, the lifestyle that she wanted was more important than her relationship. Now, that's a true story, but it's kind of extreme and most of us wouldn't be like that, but I think most of us have a preferred lifestyle. Most of us have the things that we want, sometimes things that we even think that we deserve. And Jesus is going to confront us a little bit about some of the assumptions about what's most important in our lives. So today we're looking at Matthew chapter 19, verses 16 through 25. Just then, a man came up to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Why do you ask me about what is good? Jesus replied. There is only one who is good. If you want to enter life, keep the commandments. Which ones? He inquired. Jesus replied, You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother and love your neighbor as yourself. All these I've kept, the young man said. What do I still lack? Jesus answered, If you want to be perfect, go, sell your possessions, and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sad, because he had great wealth. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I tell to you, it is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished and asked, Who then can be saved? So, the passage starts out with, just then. Why are those connecting words there? Well, in the previous passage, it's another story of Jesus with children. Uh, and there are a couple of these. Angela preached on one last week. If you don't become like a child, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven. But right before this passage is kind of the famous, let the little children come to me passage. And we don't really expect Jesus to be welcoming to children. 
And then the next thing that happens is here comes this guy that we definitely expect Jesus to be excited about. And there's this intentional contrast between the children and the rich guy. And it's supposed to challenge our assumptions about what and who is truly important to God. Now, there's parallel passages in Luke and Mark about this too. And in Luke, it tells us that he was a ruler or some sort of leader. It's not really specified. And we know from all of the accounts in our story here that he was rich from later on in the story. And so we think, well, obviously, Jesus is going to be excited about having someone like this. But here's the thing. The stuff that matters to us isn't necessarily what matters to Jesus. In this case, the money doesn't matter to Jesus. Jesus is not impressed with our stuff or our power or our influence. That's why he keeps pointing to children. They have none of those things. They simply have love and trust. Because Jesus does care about who we are. Jesus wants us to be free to follow him fully. Not because he wants us to suffer or to take away all of our fun, but because if we trust him, he gives us what we need to truly find peace and joy and hope and fulfillment. So these passages intentionally, so this passage intentionally follows the previous passage. We didn't expect Jesus to welcome the kids, and we do expect Jesus to welcome this person. So now let's see how it plays out. Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Why do you ask me what's good, Jesus replied. There's only one who is good. If you want to enter life, keep the commandments. Which ones, he inquired. Jesus replied, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother and love your neighbor as yourself. All these I've kept, the young man said. What do I still lack? First thing I want you to note, if you're familiar with particularly the parallel passages, is that there is a difference in the phrasing. In Luke, the, the man says, good teacher, what thing do I need to do? In Matthew, it's teacher, what good thing do I need to do? And I think that makes a little bit more sense of what's going on because then it makes sense of what Jesus says afterwards. So I like this phrase, what good thing do I have to do? And I like this guy. I think he's very sincere. I think he's a good person. I think he's on the right track. And he's not asking Jesus an academic question. This is not one of the people who comes to try and trip Jesus up. Other people do that, but not this guy. This is really an honest question about his own personal faith. He's concerned about being saved. And the language that he uses is maybe a little bit different than the language we might use, but Jesus has already talked using this language that the guy uses. Like in Matthew chapter 7, where Jesus says, Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. So this guy is looking for the road that leads to life. So kudos to him. So where does he start? I want to be a good person. So what do I need to do? What good thing do I need to do to get eternal life? And Jesus answers in a way that sounds a little bit strange. And he says there's only one who is good. And that's God because the one is capitalized. So Jesus is basically saying, if, if you want to see what goodness looks like, look at God. And then model yourself after that. 
And then he gives them some instructions for what good things he can do. Keep the commandments, that'll start you down the right road. And the guy asks, which ones? I think it's an honest question because I think he wants to do the right thing. So tell me, Jesus, what do I need to do specifically? So Jesus gives an example. It's not an exhaustive list, but it's like, well, let's start with these. Don't kill anybody, don't commit adultery, don't steal stuff, don't lie, take care of your folks, love your neighbor like you do yourself. And the guy's response is, I do all that. What else? Now, I don't think this is hyperbole because Paul also said, I, I've done all those things. I don't think it would be atypical to have people who literally kept those commandments. So I think in all sincerity, he's like, I've, I've done those things. And there's a couple of ways to look at this. First is that the man realizes that he needs something more than to just do these things. He's kept the law, but there's still this longing inside of him. I kept the rules, and I still have this sense that there's more. He still has this feeling of being unfulfilled. That's one way to look at it. Another way to look at it is he goes, keep the law, check, what else? A lot of commentators read this as, this guy is ready for a challenge. Okay, I did spirituality one, I'm ready for AP spirituality now. And I love that idea. I love the thought that here's an example of a guy who's like, I am not satisfied, I want to go deeper, I want to be challenged in my faith, challenge me, let's go. I love that. And I don't know if the two ways of looking at this are necessarily mutually exclusive. They might both be true. So Jesus answers him with what will truly fulfill him and also with the challenge he's looking for. Jesus says, if you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. Well, welcome to the verse of the Bible that is most often taken as metaphor. Because we can't believe that Jesus is serious. Sell all your stuff and give it away. That's crazy talk. But we also looked at the Sermon on the Mount and didn't think that Jesus was serious about that either. But, fun fact, he was. So, there's something going on here that we need to take a deeper look at. Jesus says, if you want to be perfect. Now, the word perfect doesn't mean perfect in the sense of as good as possible. So, even there, Jesus is upping the game. You want to be good, but good isn't good enough. Perfect here means complete, fully matured and completely fulfilled. If you really want that, and that's obviously what Jesus wants for him and for us, then here's what you need to do. If you want to be fully complete, you want to be perfect, you want to be fulfilled, Jesus gives them this super practical action. Go divest yourself of all of your assets, give the money to the poor, then come follow me. Now, this isn't completely out of left field because charitable giving is not unknown at the time. Jews were encouraged to be charitable, but it was within what commentator called a sensible limit. In other words, charity is good, but let's not get crazy about it. What is different here is not Jesus telling him to be charitable, it's that Jesus doesn't set a limit to his demand. Jesus isn't like, sell a little bit or give a decent amount, give an impressive amount. Jesus is like, sell it all. That's what's revolutionary. 
And here's why Jesus does this. Because it's not about the money. Jesus doesn't care about the money, really. What does he care about? Well, sell and give are followed by come and follow. Jesus' challenge to this dude is not poverty, it's discipleship. And that's also where grace and faith come in. Jesus is saying, renounce the way you're currently living, remove the barriers to trusting me, and then trust me and follow me. And that's the faith aspect of it. But too often, we take salvation by grace alone, by faith alone, to mean that we don't need to do anything, and that's wrong. We've seen throughout Matthew that Jesus constantly talks about how we need to do something with our faith or our faith just isn't real. Sell and give, come and follow. Discipleship, as Jesus lays it out, will cost you everything. There's no half-following Jesus. Well, quite obviously, a lot of folks do half-follow Jesus. But that's why they've got so little joy, hope, and peace. And that's why there are so many mean Christians, because people are only half-following. What Jesus points out to this guy is that he's got divided loyalties. And that can be a danger for us, too. He wants to enter the kingdom of heaven, but he can't do that if his money owns his heart. Now, money is neutral. How we feel about it isn't. The emphasis we put on it isn't. There's just so much hype around money in our culture. A very famous person who's been pretty active in partisan politics, when he was asked a question about this, agreed that it's not red or blue, it's green. So his interests were not particularly Republican politics or Democrat politics. It was the money that his views would bring in. Ultimately, the motivation for everything that he did was around the green. It was around money. And I think it's fair to ask, why not be interested in money? I mean, we think money will make us happy. We think it'll make us feel secure. We think it gives us something to trust in. But the reality is, it doesn't. You want to feel complete? Money will never do that. Money will never satisfy you. It will only make you want more. Why? Because you'll never have enough. Nobody thinks they're rich. They think people who are on the next step are rich. And so that's what they aspire to. Nobody feels like they have enough. They want more. Money doesn't make us happy. What money does is it gives us more opportunities to anesthetize ourselves. And that's not particularly healthy. Jesus basically says, I wish you would quit misplacing your trust in your money. Because only Jesus can bring real security and only Jesus is completely trustworthy. Now, there's an interesting history of the interpretation of this verse. It's pretty much divided between two groups. First, there are the people who take verse 21, go and sell and give everything to the poor, as a literal command for everyone who wants to follow Jesus. Take whatever resources you have, sell them, give them to the poor, and trust God for the things that you need. As you might suspect and hope, this is the minority view. The second are people who look for exegetically responsible ways to avoid a literal application. This, as you might suspect, is the majority view. 
Um, Robert Gundry uh, said this, and I, I just think it's the greatest line ever, that Jesus did not command all his followers to sell all their possessions gives comfort only to the kind of people to whom he would issue that command. So you might want to pause on that for just a second. So there's basically these two choices, people who think that it is universally applicable to every disciple of Jesus and other people who figure out a way that it really isn't applicable to anybody. And I don't like either one of those choices because I think Jesus is perfectly serious. If your money is standing in the way of you fully trusting in Jesus, then you need to remove that obstacle. If it's not your money, if it's position or power or control or whatever, I think the call is that you need to divest yourself of those things if you want to follow Jesus. I think Jesus is dead serious about not trying to serve two masters. Let's keep going. The word perfect in verse 21, if you want to be perfect, do these things, has also been suggested to a set up like a two-tier model of discipleship with the perfect or the higher caliber followers of Jesus giving away their, their possessions, renouncing that kind of stuff, while the ordinary followers of Jesus are allowed to, and I love this language, aspire to a less ascetic standard. I love that, a less ascetic standard. I wish that was my line. It's like, Jesus, I'm going to follow you, but I'm going to choose the second tier of discipleship. I really prefer the less ascetic standard. I'm totally down as long as I don't have to try very hard or really do anything I don't want to. All of this basically leads to most of us concluding that verse 21 doesn't apply literally to us. And it probably doesn't. But what if it did? Because I don't want to domesticate Jesus. Jesus is God, not your boyfriend. This is a call to hardcore discipleship. And I think we need to wrestle with the words of Jesus as he says them. No surprise, verse 22, when the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I tell you, it's hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. You can, I think, hear the sadness in Jesus' voice. He thinks the guy has made a bad choice. And maybe the, if this was you, Jesus would say, give up your anger or give us something. I don't know what. It's just that money tends to have such a grip on us. And it's so descriptive of who we are. Say what you will, but show me what you spend your money on, and I'll tell you who you are and to what or to whom you belong. In this dude's case, what stands in the way of him following Jesus is his money. In verse 20, I, I do all this stuff. I'm all in except for my money. And that could happen with anything. It just happens with great frequency when it comes to money. And it makes Jesus sad that he has chosen to let his life be controlled by something that ultimately won't bring him joy or satisfaction. That's what really is going on in this passage. Now, I also want to take a look at this um, as how it, money relates to the church. Because I think it's a fairly common complaint that the church is only interested in money. But honestly, we don't even make that big of a deal around, about money around here. We don't take an offering. There's just things on the wall that you can put money in if you want to. At the end of every service, we try each week to tell you what difference is made 
with the money that you entrust to us, and we invite you to partner with us, and we hope that you will. But if you aren't there, or you can't, and there's any number of reasons why people can't give, or if you don't want to, we've got you covered. We've got tons of people who are super generous. Your brunch every week is covered by a family in our church. If you need a scholarship to help send your kids to camp, there are people who will pay for that. We don't charge for childcare for anything because we have people who will cover that. We do birthday parties and buy clothes and food for kids and families who can't afford it. We take care of older people. We help to provide safe places for kids who've been abused. We provide furniture and dignity to people who've lost everything or are starting over after a tragedy. We do the upkeep at a camp for developmentally disabled adults. We're providing aid to some of the poorest of the poor in India. And it all happens because a whole group of generous people who are economically all over the continuum and give at different levels, but all give because they believe that they're stewards of what God has given them and they're following Jesus who generously gives to us. And they demonstrate regularly that they trust Jesus more than they trust their money. And we want you to join us when you're ready and when you're able. I actually think that the future is going to be different. I have a lot of hope in the next generation. Because as I look at the generation that's coming up, most of the people that I see and talk to in the literature that I read says that basically what they want to do is make a difference in the world. And many of them have seen that accumulating stuff leads nowhere. And a lot of people in the younger generations are coming to grips with that much of what the older generations took for granted are going to be out of their reach, like home ownership. What people, younger people, are interested primarily that I see is not so much money as it is justice and fairness. So I think that the future is really bright because those are things that are close to the heart of God. I also want to remind you of the challenge that I issued at the very beginning of the year. I challenged you to do one of two things. That was to provide a birthday party for a kid in a school near you who couldn't provide their own birthday party or whose parents couldn't do that, or to take one day less of vacation, however many days you're gonna take for vacation this year, to take one day less and take the money that you would have spent on that day and do something for somebody else that would be kind and good and then be helpful. And the grand prize that I suggested would go to somebody, just because this just struck me as extravagant but amazing, is if somebody would look at a family that they know in their sphere of influence, school, whatever, and realize that that family does not have the ability to do something that a lot of us take for granted, and that is like, take your kids to Disneyland. And my challenge was, what if you went to this family and you said, if you can get to the park, the tickets are on us. How would that blow people away? And what would that say about you and the way that you care? And how might that open up a conversation about you're giving money away because you trust Jesus? Just wanted to remind you of those things. Still two months left. So let me ask you three questions. Are you aiming for complete discipleship or a somewhat less ascetic standard. Two, if you asked Jesus, what do I still lack? How would he answer? Number three, what is one thing you can do this week 
to grow in trusting Jesus. Hi, thanks for watching. The people of Harbor Covenant Church really want you to know the love that God has for you, want to grow with you in faith, and want to serve alongside you, not only to help others do the same, but also to make our families and our communities better. If that sounds like something that you can get on board with, then like, follow, and drop us a comment in the video. Watch some more videos on our channel or come visit us on Sunday. You can find out more about Harbor Covenant Church at harborcove.church.